following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. All right, so Revelation 20 this morning. It's a controversial chapter. It's a tricky chapter. But we are really building now towards the big crescendo and the great victory of Revelation. So let's read this together. Revelation chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And everyone was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. All whose names were not found written in the book of life were thrown into the lake of fire. Well, in uh, April... 1981, there was an Arizona surgeon named James McCulloch. He abruptly ended his medical practice. His wife sold up her boutique store in Nevada. Together they sold their family Porsche. They and other members of the Lighthouse Gospel Tract Foundation were waiting for the rapture, which James McCulloch believed was going to happen on June 28, 1981. Pretty specific. And then they believed seven years later, after the rapture, after the seven-year tribulation, they would return to earth with Jesus, who would set up his millennial kingdom on earth on May 14th, 1988. Interestingly, about, around about the same time in the 80s, there was a pretty popular book that came out called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is Going to Be in 1988. I don't know whether any of you read it. Uh, of course, 1988 came and went with no obvious rapture. Um, And some people jokingly suggested the book should have been released the following year under the title 89 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1989. Could have been a bestseller. You see, you've got a marketing formula then. But there have been no shortage of people uh, quite willing to predict when the so-called rapture is going to happen, when the end of the world is going to happen, 
when the return of Jesus is going to happen, and when this event in Revelation 20 is going to happen, the millennial reign, this thousand-year reign uh, of the saints with Jesus, when it's going to happen. And this passage, particularly these six verses at the beginning of Revelation 20, really are a core text in many, many end times theories and debates. This passage has become a battleground upon which Christians have waged their own war of Armageddon with all these controversies about what this thousand-year reign is, what it represents, who's part of it, who's not part of it, how does it work, is it on earth, is it in heaven, is it in the past, is it in the present, maybe it's in the future, and everybody gathers into these little camps, and this has become a hugely controversial text. It is honestly no overstatement to say that no other six verses in the entire Bible have generated as much controversy and as much hostility as Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6. It is just a critical passage of Scripture for many people in the way the whole end times debate is constructed. So much so that even the major categories of end times theories today are all based on how you interpret Revelation 20. Premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, it's all about the millennium. So much has been loaded up onto these six verses. So much has been made of them. So pretty safe to say in the next 30 minutes, I'll probably lose some friends. And uh, I may make a few more friends. I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to come out. But I want you to know whatever happens in the next 30 minutes, I love you. And um, I'll see you at the other end. But <laughs> if, if, I, if I can just give one plea before we dive into this, which is whatever view you hold of this chapter, please hold it with love and with grace and with respect. I think this chapter is as much about how we hold our views as what views we hold, whether we're able to hold them with love and the ability to learn and to listen and to dialogue with those who hold different views from us. So let's just uh, go into it with that spirit and with that mindset. Now, the basic storyline here is, is fairly straightforward. Uh, an angel comes down from heaven, he takes hold of Satan, he puts Satan in an abyss and seals it there, so Satan's imprisoned in this abyss for a thousand years. During the same thousand years, uh, this group of people, the souls of these people, whoever they are, come to life and reign with Jesus. And then once the thousand years is over, Satan is released, he has a final go at uh, opposing the people of God, but He's destroyed or he's thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. So the storyline, simple enough. Everyone can agree on that. The, the big question, of course, is what does it all mean? What does it represent? What's really going on here? Well, there have been traditionally three views on this passage, and I, I won't go into a lot of detail on them, but let me just sketch them out for you so you're aware. You may have heard some of these names before. The first is premillennialism. Premillennialism takes the thousand years literally. Premillennialism claims this is a literal thousand-year reign of the saints with Jesus that is still to happen at a future time after Jesus returns, usually followed uh, by the last judgment, usually preceded by a seven-year period of tribulation, which in itself is preceded by the rapture. It's a time when Jesus reigns physically on earth with the church and with the restored nation of Israel from a throne in Jerusalem. So that's basically premillennialism, literal future. Second view, postmillennialism. Postmillennialism is the view that the thousand years is not strictly a thousand years, but it is a long period of time. 
It's a time that's going to happen when the world is largely Christianized because of the missionary activity of the church and the spreading of the gospel. This will usher in a golden age where Christian values will be the norm, where sin will be largely eradicated, where Christian influence will be huge, and it'll be a golden age for the gospel. After that time, Jesus will return, hence the name post-millennial. Jesus will return after that millennium, and that will be when the final judgment occurs. Now, I should note that view, post-millennialism, is almost completely abandoned today. Sorry if you're a post-millennialist, but uh, that view is almost... It only took a couple of world wars and a holocaust in the 20th century for people to give up that kind of optimism about just how better the world is getting and whether it's going to be transformed into a Christianized world simply through the missionary activity of the church. But that is post-millennialism, and it's certainly had its heyday. Third view is amillennialism. It's not a great name, but it's stuck, so we'll go with it. Amillennialism is the view that the thousand years is a symbolic reference to the church age. So the millennium stretches from the resurrection of Jesus right through to the return of Jesus. It's that whole period of time. In other words, we're in the millennium now. We're experiencing it now. It's not future, it's present, and it has lasted since Jesus returned. Satan is bound in the present in the sense that he doesn't have the same ability to deceive the nations that he did before Jesus. And usually amillennialists claim that just before Christ returns, there'll be a final period where Satan's let out of his cage, so to speak. He'll have a last burst at trying to overthrow the people of God, and then finally he'll be sentenced uh, at the point that Christ returns in victory. If you don't like any of those views, um, I've got a couple of others that I can suggest. One is anti-millennialism. This is the uh, view that I can't stand the whole discussion. Uh, there's also non-millennialism. I've ripped that page out of my Bible. So you may be more comfortable with one of those views. I don't know. I don't know which view you particularly hold. But let me just say something about all three of the traditional views. I tend to think all three of them make too much of the millennium. Uh, the very fact that they define themselves by how you interpret the millennium, I think they put more weight on this passage than it can really bear. You would think, listening to some people talk about the millennium in all of these camps, that it's mentioned in every second verse of the Bible. The truth is, it's only mentioned here. This is the only time in the whole Bible. Now, you can try and read it into other places, and you can assume that it might be being talked about in other places, but this is the only time in the whole Bible that the, that the millennium is mentioned, this thousand-year reign is mentioned. It's not even a big motif in Revelation. It hasn't even cropped up until here. John gets this vision, and then he moves on, and then he's on to the new creation and the new chapter. So I wouldn't make more of this thousand-year reign than is really appropriate in the context of Revelation. And to build an entire eschatology, that is an entire theory of the end times, on six verses in the Bible, I think is dangerous. I think it's, it's loading way too much onto one passage of Scripture, and we need to be very careful about doing that. Now, having said that, and at the risk of complicating the scenario even further, let me offer you one other view of Revelation 20. One alternative view, if you like. It's not a widely held view. Um, it, it's a minority view. In fact, the only people I know that hold this view are me and God. But um, it's... That's not quite true. <laughs> That's not true. Um, but there are quite a few people that hold it, but it, it is a minority view. But 
It's a view that tries, I suppose, not to elevate this idea more than is really legitimate and tries to place it in the context of the unfolding story of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, if you've followed the story so far, there have been three major series of judgments. We've had the seven seals, we've had the seven trumpets, we've had the seven bowls. Each time, the action is built and built and built, this judgment is built and built and built, and then there's been an interlude before the final, the seventh judgment. Every time that's happened, and every time the purpose of that interlude is to highlight something significant. It's not so much to insert a break of time in the action, it's to get our attention. It's to stop the action at a critical point where the judgment is crescendoing in order to focus us on something we otherwise might have missed. Now, in Revelation 18, we have the beginning of a final great series of judgment. It begins with the judgment against Babylon or Rome, moves through the judgment against the beast and the false prophet. It, it climaxes, we saw last week, with the return of Jesus, the faithful and true rider on the white horse who comes to defeat the enemies of God. And then just as this judgment scene is building and building and building, we have, in Revelation 20, an interlude. It's another interlude. That's what these six verses are, I would suggest. In fact, after this interlude in verse 7, the action picks up again, and we have the final judgment pronouncement against the great enemy of God, Satan himself. So I think in the context of Revelation, that's how to see this. Uh, John is not trying to insert necessarily a particular time period into the action. This is a rhetorical device designed to get our attention. This is designed to highlight something that we otherwise might have not seen by breaking the action at a critical point jolting us out of our complacency and saying, hey, pay attention to this. There's something here you don't want to miss. Now, the critical question, of course, is what is it? What is this passage highlighting? Well, I think a big clue is given to us by the identity of these people who reign with Jesus. After all, that, I think, is the main point. Not so much that Satan is bound, but who are the people reigning? Who are the people who come to life and reign with Jesus for a thousand years? Well, look at the description of them in verse 4. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the Word of God. Now, who does that sound like? It doesn't necessarily sound like all Christians, does it? It sounds to me like this could be talking about the martyrs. It sounds like this could be a reference to those who have given their life for the gospel. Now, if that's true then we are tapping into a theme that's been pretty dominant right through Revelation. Revelation has circled back to the issue of martyrdom numerous times. We saw way back in chapter 2, Antipas in Pergamum was martyred for his faith. The prostitute, Rome, drunk with the blood of God's people. Babylon, responsible for the slaughter of all the people on the earth. This theme of martyrdom has come up time and time again. The people of God have been oppressed. They've been struck down. They've been persecuted and killed by the beast and killed by the false prophet. And this was a real issue in John's day. It's a real issue in the first century. Maybe not so much for us in 21st century New Zealand, but martyrdom was real in the first century. This kind of persecution. If you decided to be a follower of Jesus, there was a real possibility you might end up being at the wrong end of a Roman sword. This was how these Christians lived. So it may be that what is happening in Revelation 20 is this interlude highlighting that ultimately those who have laid down their lives literally for the gospel will be vindicated and resurrected and will reign with Christ. 
all through the book, these martyrs have been struck down and beaten and killed. And finally here, this is their vindication. What this passage is highlighting is the triumph, I think, of the martyrs. The triumph of those who have given their life for the gospel. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be this future period of time where the martyrs are reigning ahead of everybody else and we all get left behind and they do their thing first. Again, I don't think you need to take the millennium in that kind of strictly literal way any more than you need to take the numbers elsewhere in Revelation or the characters in Revelation like the dragon in a strictly literal way. I think this could be a rhetorical device to point us towards and to highlight the triumph and the victory of the martyrs, that ultimately they'll be vindicated. Ultimately, those very ones whom the beast killed will triumph over the beast and will reign with Jesus. See, we're at a point in the book where now loose ends are being tied up, and now we're starting to see some of the resolution to tension that was created earlier on. If you feel like that's drawing a pretty long bow, let me just highlight one other passage to you and put it beside this one. Back in Revelation 6, when Jesus opened the fifth seal, it was a particular vision of the souls under the altar. Do you remember that? Revelation 6, 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you avenge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants and brothers and sisters had been killed just as they had been. So there's a reference to the martyrs, the souls under the altar, crying out for vindication, crying out, how long, O Lord, is it going to be until we are vindicated and those who have killed us are avenged? I think Revelation 20 may provide the answer. You set that right alongside this. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony about Jesus and the word of God. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. I think Revelation 20 may answer the question of Revelation 6. How long is it going to be until the martyrs of the gospel are vindicated? It will be when Christ returns. They will be resurrected and they will reign with Christ and perhaps receive a special place of honor because of the incredible sacrifice they've made. So I would suggest that maybe that and that alone is the point of the millennium. It may not be trying to give us an entire theory about the end times. This may simply be a way of providing an interlude in the action to highlight the vindication and the triumph and the victory of Christian martyrs. Uh, that view is summed up by Michael Gorman, who says this, the primary function of this blissful interlude in Revelation is to reassure the church that its martyrs will be victorious and thereby to reinforce the church's faithful witness. And maybe by pushing the text further than that, we may be pushing it beyond what John intended and beyond what Jesus revealed. Well, maybe. It's possible. It's a theory. But I've found with all of this stuff, there's four really important words. I could be wrong. <laughs> I could be wrong. I could be so wrong. And I've become more comfortable saying that. I could be wrong, I could be way off. And I just hope and urge you that you're able to say those words as well. Whatever view you hold, and if you don't hold any view, you could be wrong about that too. <laughs> Whatever camp you end up in on this contentious issue, 
Just allow yourself to say those words. I could be wrong. After you've espoused your view and marshaled all of your arguments and given all of your examples, just end with those four words, will you? In your life groups, around the dinner table. I could be wrong. It makes you feel good. It's very cleansing. It's very humbling. It's very cathartic. I could be wrong. There's a much-needed dose of humility in there, I think. So whatever view we take of Revelation 20, I think it's as much about how we hold our view with grace and respect towards others as it is about what we specifically believe. Okay, a couple of other comments on this passage. In these final uh, sections of the chapter, we see the defeat of Satan in verse 7 to 10. And again, there's been a lot of fodder here for end times theorists and futurists. This reference to Gog and Magog in particular. Some people have taken these nations to be Russia. You might have heard that view. In fact, apparently, I haven't read the Left Behind series, but apparently one of those books opens with a scene in which Russia attacks Israel, allegedly based on this passage here. Well, again, Gog and Magog have an historical reference back in Ezekiel 38-39, where they refer to particular nations north of Israel who threatened to attack Israel back in that time period. So it's good to anchor the text in its original context first. Probably Gog and Magog became a proverbial reference to any enemy of God, any nation that stood against and opposed and oppressed the people of God. And of course, how you interpret verses 7 to 10 is going to depend on how you interpreted verse 1 to 6, whether you're the premill or the postmill or the amill or the, the view that I suggested of the interlude highlighting the triumph of the martyrs. That'll depend, that'll determine how you then highlight this next bit. So let me just say this, I won't go through all the scenarios, but if you did take the earlier view that Revelation 21 to 6 highlighted the Christian martyrs, the simple point of verses 7 to 10 would then be to continue the great series of judgment and to demonstrate the final downfall and condemnation of Satan, the great enemy of God. That may simply be the point, not to give us a detailed timeline, past, present or future, but simply to say that Satan is and will be allowed to do his worst, in this world, in the wisdom of God, Satan is given an amount of freedom, but in the end, he will be condemned. In the end, the great nemesis of God will be destroyed. He'll be thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. In the present, Satan's power seems incredible, doesn't it? In the present, his temptations tangle us up. His deceptions blind us to reality. His accusations wear away at our souls, and we're so often on the receiving end of his pummeling attacks in our lives. And this passage here gives us an assurance that one day Satan's future is certain. He will be destroyed and he will be condemned and he will have no part in the great new creation and the new heavens and the new earth that God's preparing for those who follow the Lamb. That's the promise. I mean, it stretches our imagination to think of a Satan-free world, doesn't it? Just imagine that. The author of evil, everything that flows from that, all the brokenness, all the suffering, all the temptation, all the deception... And the accusation, all of it just done away with. All of it just thrown into the lake of fire. That's what's going to happen. And you know what? Satan knows it too. Because he's read Revelation 20 as well. And he knows where he's heading. He knows that he is heading for destruction. Satan knows his time is limited. He knows that his time is short and his power is restricted. He knows where he's heading. So as the old saying goes, next time Satan reminds you of your past, you just remind him of his future. You just remind him where he's going. And may that be an assurance for you in the present, 
May that just bolster you with some confidence from the Spirit in the present, knowing that you're fighting a battle that has been won and will be fully implemented one day. Satan's not going to be around forever. His time's short. And if you need reminding of it, you just go to those three verses. That's where he's heading. Next time he marshals all of his troops against you, you just remind him of where he's heading. All right, finally then, this last judgment, verse 11. The great white throne judgment. And we see here all humanity resurrected to stand before the judgment seat of God. This is important. Everyone one day is going to be resurrected, not just Christians. Everyone. Everyone who has ever lived, everyone from every continent will be resurrected and will stand before the judgment seat of God. And the way this scene is described here, there are two things that are going to happen when we stand before God on the day of judgment. The first is that God opens these books. You see the reference there to the books, plural, the books. And these books seem to be a record of all our deeds, the things that we have done. These people are judged, we're all judged by the things that we have done as recorded in the books. So God's going to open these books and they will reveal everything that you've done, every thought that you've thought, every word that you've said, every action you've taken, every hidden motive right through your life. It's all going to be opened up and it's all going to be open discussion between you and the sovereign of the universe. Now, some Christians are uncomfortable with this because it doesn't sound much like grace. Sounds a lot like works, doesn't it? Well, the New Testament's quite clear. There is going to be a judgment according to works. We will be judged by what we've done. We will be judged by our deeds. Jesus was clear about it. Paul was clear about it. There are some references in your study sheets if you want to go and look them up and make sure I'm not lying. There will be a judgment according to works. God will open the books. I don't know how that makes you feel. I don't feel great about it. To be honest, I'm not really looking forward to that because not everything I've done has been good by a long shot. I don't think the verdict for me on that day is going to be particularly favorable. I think I'm going to hear guilty. I think the gavel's going to come down and it's going to be a guilty verdict. I think that's probably true for all of us, if we're honest. If we really think there's going to be these books opened with every deed in our lives done, it doesn't fill us with confidence, does it? It doesn't give us warm and fuzzies. We're all going to hear that guilty verdict pronounced over our lives. And we're all going to be judged by what we have done. But then, we see another twist. And God opens another book. It's not the books, plural. It's a book. Verse 12, another book was opened, which is the book of life. The Lamb's book of life. And verse 15 sums it up. All those whose names were not found in the book of life were thrown into the fire. This book of life, the Lamb's book of life, is simply a record of those who are united to Jesus, who have given their lives over to the sovereignty of Jesus, who have chosen Him as their liberator, chosen Him as their Lord, who have aligned their lives to Him. It's not about those who are more or less sinful. It is about those who have received mercy because they have bowed the knee and confessed that Jesus is Lord. That's the record of those whose names are in the Lamb's Book of Life. And after opening the books, God's going to open the Lamb's Book of Life. He's going to look and see if your name's there, and that and that alone will be the criteria of whether or not you are ushered into the new creation or whether, sadly and horrifically, you are assigned to the lake of fire. The book of life is ultimately what it's all about. So you could put it this way. We are judged according to works, but we are saved according to grace. That's how it'll be. 
There will be a judgment according to works, but then there will be a salvation. There'll be a vindication solely according to grace. It's all going to depend on what you've done with Jesus on that day. No time for second chances then. No time to change your mind then. That decision's made in this life. It's sealed in death. It's settled in eternity. God will decide that day on the basis of what you've done with Jesus. Is your name in the Lamb's book of life? Friends, that's the most important question I can ask you on the basis of this whole chapter. Is your name in the Lamb's book of life? What have you done with Jesus? Have you honestly surrendered to him? as the one who has saved you and given his life for you? Have you received the forgiveness of God for your sin and entered into relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Have you received the gift of the Holy Spirit? Are you right now in a relationship with God through Jesus? Do you know Jesus? And are you sure that your name is in the Lamb's book of life? If you're not sure, if you answered no to that question, I urge you to do something about it. I urge you to become right with God by opening yourself up to his embrace and accepting his invitation of new life. Because I don't want to get there on that day and be standing next to you and find that your name's not in that book of life. We don't wish that for anybody. It doesn't give us some smug pleasure as Christians to think about those whose names are not in this book. We're not happy about that. We don't celebrate that. We grieve it, and all we want to do is encourage you. Not because we're better than you. Not because we've got it all figured out. Not because we're more perfect or better in any way. The only difference, First Peter talks about this, the only difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is one has received mercy, and one has not yet. Not more or less sinful, not better or worse, one has received mercy. And I just urge you today, if you have not yet received the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, to make sure your name is written in the Lamb's book of life so that on that day you'll hear that name called out. We're all going to hear guilty after the books are opened, but may we also hear after the Lamb's book of life is opened. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter into the joy of your rest, not for anything in us that's worthy, but simply because of what Jesus has done for us. And I love it, friends, that at the end of this final scene of judgment in Revelation, just before we open the door to the new creation in chapter 21, it's going to be so exciting. But just before that, the final word of the whole judgment scene is grace. Don't you love that? In the end, it's about grace. In the end, it's about Jesus. In the end, it's about what we have done with him on the basis of what he has done for us in his death and resurrection. And I think that's the place to end not with endless controversies and quarrels and arguments about the intricacies of end times theories, but with a focus on Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God upon the throne, and a return to the central truths that stand out from this passage. One day, Satan is going to be judged. One day, the martyrs will be vindicated, and all the people of God will be vindicated and reign with Jesus. And one day, there's going to be a judgment. And the gateway into the new heavens and the new earth will simply and solely be the cross of Christ. Let's pray. So God, we bow our lives, bow our knees to you and surrender ourselves to you. As we think about that day, God, it puts a lot of things in perspective for us about what we're living for now about who is truly Lord of our lives. And all we long for, God, is to hear our name read out on that, on that day, to know that we're in the Lamb's book of life. But I pray, God, it wouldn't just be a formula, it wouldn't just be a ticket to heaven. 
pray it wouldn't be eternal life insurance. I pray this would make a difference in our lives now. And I pray for any person here who does not know what it is to have that life-changing relationship with you, God. I pray that you would remove whatever is standing between them and you this morning. And as your word says, I pray you'd lift the veil that today, perhaps for the first time, they might see you. That they might see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. Make yourself known to us, we pray. Thank you that you are good and that your judgment will be just. We thank you that you've given us a way of salvation through Jesus. Thank you that we look forward one day to freedom beyond judgment. In Christ's name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.